Let's get in the Word of God here, James chapter 1. And listen, we're going we're gonna to bite off a lot today. We're going to look at the first verse. And um, this really could be a, probably a three-weeker, but I uh, really want to really lay the foundation down for our study in James. So there's some stuff we really want to take our time with and uh, really consider. Let's, let's read the first verse together, and then we'll talk about a little bit the groundwork and, and James himself. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And now, one thing that's very important to do uh, in this setting, if you're teaching through an epistle, uh, a book of the Bible, or in your own studies, reading through a gospel, uh, a, a, an epistle, a book of the Bible, there are certain questions that we should ask that really help us in studying the Word of God in context and in rightly dividing the Word of God. Uh, we should ask the question, who wrote this book? We should ask the question, who was it written to when it was originally written? Now, these things are preserved for us as well, but who was this written to? We should ask when it was written. And I think in a teaching setting, it's always important to give an overview. And this morning, we're going to try to answer these questions. Who wrote this book? Who was it written to? When it was written? And just kind of give a real <clears throat> brief. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of the main message of the epistle of James itself. And again, this is important because just like in everyday life, uh, you know, it, communication is key in understanding. And let me ask you this morning, have any of you ever gotten a text message that was not intended for you? Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. You get that and you're like, what the heck? What is this? And then usually you get one immediately after that with an emoji smiley face saying, oh, sorry, that was not meant for you. Or let me ask you, have you ever been on the other end of sending a text message and it got going to the right person? And uh, there was a, a, a young guy in our church, he just got married a few weeks ago, and it was in our last counseling session, and we had to change the dime, and he sent it back, and I'm like, that's work. And I went through my emojis, and I'm a big thumbs up guy, because it's like thumbs up, and I accidentally did touch the smiley face that's blowing a kiss. <laughs> yeah. And so I immediately said, hey, sorry about that, I meant to give you one of these. And so we got a big laugh about that. So listen... Who's writing and who that's meant to is a big deal, right? And so we're going to talk about that, and uh, that's, that's going to help us a lot as we go through the epistle. And then we're also going to look at James himself. We're, we're going to talk about what James it is that wrote this book, because we read about four to five different guys named James in the New Testament. But we're, we're going to see his calling as a bondservant. He identifies himself as a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about what a bondservant is, and we're going to glean from that Call, the fact that we've been called as followers of Christ to be bondservants of God. And so we're going to look at that call in our life. And then we're also going to consider James's conversion. Because the James that wrote this epistle, it's really clear in Scripture that he was not a believer his whole life. He wasn't always a bondservant. In fact, the Bible records his resistance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, we see him as a follower of Christ. And we want to look at the things that really played a part in his conversion because, listen, as bondservants of Christ ourselves, as followers of Christ, we're called to spread the gospel. And that's part of one of the things we are called to do. So I think there's a lot of insights here that we can glean from in ministering the gospel to those around us, especially those that are closest to us. And so let's dive into this, a little bit, a little foundation of what we're going to talk about. Again, James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And right off the bat, 
As we ask the question, who wrote this book? We see that the writer identifies himself as James. Now, you don't get this in all of the books of the Bible. You don't get this in all of the epistles. Some of them, they do. Others, uh, it, it's implied by something said about himself when the writer's writing. And then there's other ones that we can look at. And there's hints and there's conclusions to help us know who wrote the book itself. And there's some that, like Hebrews, it's still up in the air. We know an apostle wrote it, which one we're totally not sure. Now, listen, James wrote the book, but if James was just writing the book and the Holy Spirit did not move upon James to write the book, and if this book is not inspired by God, then this book may have some historical value, but as far as hearing from the Word of God, listen, it's not the Word of God. We read in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, that again, God's word was written as the Holy Spirit moved upon holy men. Let's read this here. It says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of men, Notice here, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God's word itself, Old Testament and New Testament alike, each book of the Bible has a proclamation that it was written by God as he moved upon holy men. And that sets the word of God apart from any other book in the world. Now, notice again, 1 Peter 1.19, it says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. It also says here that no scriptures of private interpretation. And so, listen, as God's word began to be penned there in the first century, there were other letters and there were other correspondences and so forth that were written. How do we know what's God's word and what is not God's word? Now, notice here, there's a confirmation on the books of the Bible that are the word of God, and there's a continuity where it's not this book is different from all these other books, and there's a different interpretation because this book's not written by the Lord moving on men, it's just men. And in fact, there's been a litmus test uh, that, that has been put forth that brings confirmation of what's God's word and what's God, not God's word. And I think this is important for us to consider. Have you ever had anyone ask the question, well, how, do you, how, how did the Bible come about? How do you know it is the Bible and so forth? How do you know that these letters are the prophetic word confirmed by God himself? Well, listen, there's some standards that have been put forth that are rock solid and they are biblical in confirming God's word is God's word. The first is concerning a letter, an epistle, an ancient writing and so forth. Uh, the question is asked, uh, was the author an apostle or someone with a close connection to an apostle? Now, we need to remember that, again, the gospels themselves, uh, they're not second and third person or fourth person or fourth generation accounts, but all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all eyewitness accounts. Uh, they were written by apostles. They were written by men that were close to apostles. Uh, the book of Luke, Luke spent a whole lot of time with the apostle Paul, who though he was not there with the, Jesus of, the ministry of Jesus, Jesus did appear to him. And Luke gathered a lot of information and Luke brought a first-hand account through things he saw and others that were shared to him of the ministry of Jesus Christ that coincide with the other three witnesses. The Gospel of Mark. Mark was not an apostle, but Mark was very close to Peter, who was his mentor. 
And many people believe that the Gospel of Mark actually could be called the Gospel of Peter, that Mark actually wrote that as he dictated things, or, or di things were dictated to him from Peter. So does the author have any authority? Or is this some dude that just showed up on the scene to pen some things? And what you find with the New Testament writings is they're written by apostles or individuals that had a very close connection to an apostle. They were first century disciples of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of Gnostic Gospels and other writings that were written a couple centuries later, three centuries later. They weren't individuals. I mean, think of it like this. What is more credible, a general that wrote a first-hand account of George Washington or 200 years later, you know, someone that wrote that in maybe 1776 versus, I remember the bicentennial year, I think it was about seven, eight years old, it was a big deal, of 1976. Can you imagine someone in 1976 writing an account of George Washington? Well, most of these Gnostic Gospels that you hear of, that's when they were written. It's, it's boulder dash. It's, it's not a, not a first-hand account. And you find that with these epistles, you find that with the Gospels. The second question that's asked is, was the writing accepted by the body of Christ at large. Uh, as we begin to go through the New Testament, we start to see that churches were being planted all over the Roman Empire, all over Asia Minor. Even under persecution, they flourished. We're going to get more into that next week. And listen, the letters and the Gospels that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, these things began to become universally accepted by the body of Christ at large. See, with a lot of these false writings, men writing them with their agenda, most of them were written for a little group, a little sect that had an agenda. They wanted their own private interpretation of the Bible, so what did they do? They wrote their own Bible. A great example of this today is the Watchtower Society, also known as the Jehovah Witnesses. They have their own Bible, which is a distorted version of the King James. They don't reveal who any of their Greek you know what uh, scholars are because they don't have any Greek scholars. Basically, they took the King James Version and they went in and they cut and they pasted and they took stuff out and they added in other things to try to uh, bolster their false gospel and their positions that contradict the Word of God. Listen, if what you believe contradicts the Word of God, then you need to try to alter the Word of God. And what you find with a lot of these writings that are not the word of God, is that only a small group accepted it because they had an agenda. It was a private interpretation that, that went against the, the, the 27 books of the New Testament. Also along those same lines, listen, persecution weeded out the things that weren't of God and the things were of God. Because listen, books of the Bible that were God-breathed were worth dying for. And most of them are linked with the death of the writer dying at the hands of, you know what, individuals with an antichrist spirit. You don't find that with these other ancient books that there's a few copies floating around that people want to say, oh, I grabbed it. You know what, all of this rebellion is okay because we found the gospel of Judas, for goodness sakes. Another thing that's put forth is, does the book contain consistent doctrine and orthodox teaching listen god is not a liar and in god there's no shadow of turning god does not contradict himself and what you find again that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation in other words there is a continuity from genesis to revelation as god penned his word 
over 1,500 years, 40 authors on three continents. There is a continuity doctrinally. There is a continuity with the teaching of the Word of God. In the Old Testament, it is all about looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, is the picture of a shadow of someone who is about to appear. Have you ever seen a shadow coming and then maybe someone turns the corner and then you see the substance of the shadow? And the Old Testament is the shadow and Jesus is the substance. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old. They were looking for the Messiah and Jesus Christ came and there was a continuity between the old and between the new and throughout the New Testament. There's not a contradiction. The same things are being taught over and over and over again. Listen, we're saved by grace through faith, right? Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was saved the same way. He had faith in the coming Messiah. We have faith in the Messiah's come. Guess what? Me and Abraham believe the same thing. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I put my faith in the one who died on the cross for my sins. There's a consistency there. You're also going to find a consistency in morality and spiritual values. Listen, most of these Gnostic Gospels and these other writings that, again, there's very few even copies of them. Most of them have elements of perversion. Uh, They're very uh, man-centered. They're very humanistic and so forth. They go against the consistent teaching of a call to holiness that we find in the Word of God. Our God is sinless. Our God is holy. To have a right relationship with Him, I have to have a perfect life. I grossly fall short of that. That's why I needed one who was perfect to die for me the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm called, I'm, we're told in the scripture, be holy as he's holy. We're called to walk upright lives. We're called to, 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 again, not that what we do saves us. We're saved through what he has done for us. But any that call him Lord, listen, that's evidence in that they want to honor God with their life. And so there is a consistency with uh, morality that you find beginning to end. Also, notice again there, 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word confirmed. You know, a quarter or more of the Bible is prophecy. And what do you start finding? Look at, we spent four weeks recently in Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Christ's death and resurrection. In Psalm 22, what was it all about? Christ's death and resurrection. I mean, if you were with us for that study, I, I kept seeing jaws dropping during that whole study and had so many people saying, wow, this is incredible This kind of detail was written a thousand years before Christ was crucified and hundreds of years before crucifixion was even ever invented. The prophetic word confirmed. And start looking at the books of the Bible. Almost all of them contain prophecy, prophecy that's been fulfilled. And with the New Testament, listen, the word of God gives great detail about the days that we are living in and it's unfolding just as God's word said that it would. I mean... Who would have ever been able to prophesy that Israel in the last days would become a nation again? Listen, God knows the end from the beginning, and it's one of the ways that we know that his word is is his word. Now, again, this is where some people say, well, listen, Norstradamus, he got some things right too. Well, listen, even a blind squirrel gets a nut here and there. (laughs) If I give you a bucket of darts, and I blindfold you and put a dartboard and just say, start throwing away, a few of them are going to hit the dartboard. But what you find with the word of God, it is accurate beginning to the end over and over and over and over again. And it's not a thing where, well, it says Hitler, so he's talking about Hitler. Do you know that a hundred years before God used a Gentile king, Cyrus, to let the, the, uh, the, the Israelites come back into Jerusalem? The Bible names his name a hundred years before. 
He doesn't say Cyprus, he says Cyrus. Because God knows the end from the beginning. You find that in the word of God. Um, now, just a little more on this. Have you ever heard people say, um, well, listen, what it really comes down to is um, a bunch of men got together and they just decided what would be in the word of God. And therefore, you know what, I could do that. Me and my buddies, you know, we could go shoot some pool and drink some beers and we could do that. Well, you got to understand, listen, there was never really an official um, board or group of men that decided what was the word of God and what wasn't the word of God. Really what happened is through the centuries, the first through fourth century in particular, God's word rose to the top and everything else fell by the wayside. And what you find starting was all of these additional writings, and some might have a little bit historical value, but again, they don't, they're not God-breathed. They begin to fall by the wayside. If you've ever read the Apocrypha, some of them have historical value, but listen, you read that thing, there's no unction to it. There's no confirmation. You can see there's no anointing in it. And these 27 books of the New Testament, listen, the cream rose to the top, so to speak. It, they separated themselves from the other. By the time you got to the fourth century, it was those books that stood up and the others fell by the wayside. But listen, people who, who are just resistant to God, knowing that they need to repent because God convicts all men of sin, righteousness, and judgment, they'll grab onto anything. I, I know a guy who, listen, he says, this is, you know, you try to talk about the, the Bible and stuff, and this is his excuse because someone told him this that doesn't know anything. They said, well, you know, we can't even trust the Bible because the Bible was compiled by men. It was whoever had paid the most money, that's how they got their book in the Bible. It's like, what, what is this utter nonsense? Most of the men that wrote these books, they were killed. They didn't have some big publishing deal where they were on Rome's, you know, top 20. But again, people will just grab onto anything without doing any research, without knowing anything because, listen, the enemy knows that, that there are so many that they're running from the light and they're trying to find justification in their sin, trying to run from the fact they're going to give an account before God and they need to get their sins forgiven, where people will grab onto any nonsense like that. One other thing that I oftentimes hear is, well, you know what, uh, we can't trust the Bible today because it's been altered so many times, so we can't even trust it. Listen, do you know that there's over 25,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in several different languages, and all of them line up word for word? There might be a little things in, in the sentence structure and so forth, but the doctrine, the teaching across the board, 25,000 ancient copies where it's the same. And you can take that today and translate it, and what do you get? You get the Word of God. It's not altered and kicked all around and so forth. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, so much of the Old Testament was just confirmed once again. The whole scroll of Isaiah, guess what they interpreted? It looks like the King James Version of the book of Isaiah. Amen. God has preserved his word. Listen, let me give you something to contrast this by. You go to most secular colleges today and they say, well, you know what, the, the word of God, we can't trust that and so forth. 25,000 ancient copies that hold up one another. So we're gonna, just going to kick that to the side, though. Archaeologists in the Middle East, you know what they use? Well, the Word of God, whether they like it or not, because they know it's accurate. But compare this to many other ancient writings, Julius Caesar's, Gallic Wars, that's considered some sacred you know, piece of history. Guess how many copies of that they have? A dozen. Versus 25,000. And I know there's some that say, well, you know what? I, I want to see the original. Unless I see the original, I'm not buying it. Well, 25,000 copies that coincides powerful 
And again, to put it in perspective, the first writing of the Wizard of Oz no longer exists. But there's plenty of copies, right? And I'm sure there's been a few alterations or so forth, maybe in some commas or so forth. But you start reading the copies, and guess what? It's the same thing. And all those copies that are out there even all the more confirms that it's similar to the, or it's the same as the original manuscripts. And that's what we get with the Word of God. So hopefully, hopefully that helps you this morning. Maybe for some of you that's just faith building. It's assuring. And I'm just scratching the surface on this. I mean, this, this, the, the evidence is just stacked higher and higher and higher and higher. Now, again, James wrote this, what James? There, there's five, four to five different guys in the New Testament named James. Very popular name back then very popular today. It's derived from Jacob of the Old Testament, very popular as well. James is equivalent back then and today to Steve. There's all kinds of Steves. When we named our daughter, we named her Stevie Sophia because I said, listen, I want to give her an out if she gets a little older and decides, hey, listen, I, I'm gonna, I, I need to go with something else. So I asked her the other day, listen, Stevie Sophia, do you want to start going with Sophia? You know, just throwing it out there. We had never talked about that. And she said, no way. I'm the only girl I ever met named Stevie. You know, she's like, I'm rocking it. And so, um, but with James, there's a bunch of these guys. So we should ask the question, listen, what James wrote the book? Now, the first James that oftentimes comes to people's mind is James, the brother of John, who was really part of Jesus' kind of inner circle, John, James, and Peter. They were called the sons of thunder. But we read in Acts, it was around 44 AD, that James, the brother of John, was martyred. And this becomes problematic because we know that this epistle was written between 45 and 50 A.D. So listen, you can't write something when you are dead. So that takes him off the list. There's also James, the son of Alphaeus, and James the Less. Some think that these guys may be the same guy. Others argue, well, they're different guys. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was one of the disciples of Jesus. He's almost always number nine on the list. So you, I guess you could call him number nine. James the Less, we read about his mother being there at the cross in Mark 15:40, and he lived up to his name, James the Less, meaning either smaller in size or lesser known. We just don't know a lot about this guy. And I think that's where the argument that it's the same disciple, because again, James and John were kind of leaders, and James the son of Alphas, if this is the same guy, was more, you know what, in the background a bit. Also, there's James the father of Judas. We read about him in Luke. Uh, 616. And there's no reason to believe any of those men were used to write the epistle. And then there's another James. There's James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. They had different fathers. Jesus came into the world as the Holy Spirit moved upon Mary, a virgin, so he could be born without a sin nature and go to the cross to die for sinners. And then after that, Mary had other sons and Mary had other daughters. Now, I know some people that are resistant to that. Uh, traditions of men, the immaculate conception that Mary was without sin as well, and Mary never had any other children. They go far to say as Joseph and Mary never even consummated their marriage, which if you don't do that, you actually are not married. He was betrothed to her beforehand. And then the greater difficulty than that, and again, that's all put forth to try to make Mary a co-redeemer. Mary herself said, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. God's, you know what? using me as a vessel to bring forth the Savior. His name's Jesus. But listen, even greater than that, God's word says that Jesus had brothers. That pesky thing called God's word. And just so you know, I'm not making it up. God's speaking to Joseph. 
as he's freaking out because his wife, who's a virgin, is going to have a kid. And it says he did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son. And that implies that there's a secondborn son. You don't say this is my firstborn son when there's not a secondborn son. Matthew 12, 20, uh, 47. Then one said to him or one said to Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And I've heard some people say, well, his brothers here means his bros. You know, his crew's outside. His bros are out there. And you're like, okay. Well, we go to John 2, 2 12. Uh, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. You see a distinction now between his brothers and his bros. His bros being his disciples, and now you got his brothers. And then you come to Mark 6, 3. It says, they said when he was there in Nazareth ministering, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon, or Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. Now they are named by name, and we see that he has brothers, and he has sisters, and then after Christ's death and resurrection, uh, you know what, quite a few years later, the Apostle Paul in his ministry, Galatians 1.18, it says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw uh, none other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I think, 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 think then, you know what, the traditions of men that Jesus had a brother named James because he said the Lord's brother, James. Now, again, church history Modern historians, commentators almost universally agree that it's Jesus' brother, James, that wrote this epistle. And this is going to play a part a little bit here when we talk about his conversion. We see really clear in Scripture as you get into Acts, especially the middle parts, when these Gentiles start getting saved and these Jewish believers are freaking out. They're like, I thought they had to become a Jew before they could become a Christian, and they're just straight up becoming Christians. And the Holy Spirit's falling upon them through simple faith. They're like, we got to figure this out. What in the world's going on? And as they went to Jerusalem, who do we see overseeing that council? It's not Peter. It's James, the brother of Jesus. And you can read that in Acts 12, around through 15, over and over again. Galatians 1.19, we just read he's an apostle. And in Galatians 2.9, we see that he is called a pillar of the church. Also, it's interesting, there's a few places where he's called the brother of Jesus, but the more and more you read about James through the book of Acts and in his epistle and so forth, he just is identified as James. These other Jameses, for the most part, it's always, you know, the brother of John or, you know, the son of Zebedee or, you know, the, the son of James. And James starts breaking out of that and it's just James. People, oh, James, I know who you're talking about. And there's certain people today, if you just say their name, you know what I'm talking about. I, if I say LeBron, I think most of you, you know what, probably know that I'm talking about LeBron James. Like how I worked that in there. Pretty, pretty slick, huh? If I say Oprah, you know what, for the most part, people know who you're talking about. Uh, even if I say Fabio, most of you know who I'm talking about. You, you just know. And James here, James, a bondservant of God, Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't need that identification. He identified as a bondservant. He didn't say James, the brother of the Lord. People knew. And again, you see that consistent with Acts and then also in Acts 15, James speaks quite a bit, and it's recorded what he says. And you take the language, his sentence structure, and so forth, and you compare it to this epistle, and it's just on par. Because see, all of us talk a little bit different. I talk a little bit different than you. You talk a little bit different than me, and you're like, praise God, I talk a little bit different than this guy. Uh, but if I said something over here, a conversation was recorded over here, you could begin to compare that, the way the sentences are, and so forth, to figure out who's talking. And you find that with James. Now, 
let's get in a little bit deeper here. And I think there's some real application. Hopefully all that's really helped you in being able to, again, defend your faith. And, and I think those things are faith builders, you know, to, to really understand how this has come together. But let's look at how James identifies himself. And there's some application absolutely for us. He says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he could have said, James, listen, the brother of Jesus right here. Or James, listen, the head of the church. But instead he chose to be identified as James a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Well, listen, a bondservant was considered property of another. At this time, up to a third or more of the Roman Empire uh, were slaves. They belonged to someone else. Uh, we're talking about millions of people that had been purchased by someone else, and they were their slaves. They were their bondservants. Now, listen, that was overcome through Christianity and people living out their Christianity. Go check the historical records that's the case. But James, in writing this, wrote it in a way that, again, the hearers immediately identified what a bondservant was. And see, James understood just as a bondservant of that day was one purchased by someone else, that he had been purchased by God himself and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed, and to be redeemed, it means to be purchased out of slavery. The word redeemed here means to be purchased out of slavery, never to be put up to be sold again. And I think that's awesome. You weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Notice verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. And James understood that he was a sinner and he was purchased out of his sin he was under the wrath, and what was required of him? A perfect life. He could never pay that. We're sinners. We can't pay the standard of a perfect life, and yet Jesus Christ came. He lived a sinless life. And listen, if anyone knows someone's not a sinner, wouldn't it be your brother? I mean, we start rolling in siblings in here. They're going to tell all kinds of stories about you. He knew Jesus had lived a sinless life. He had went to the cross. He had shed his blood. He had laid down his life, and he had resurrected from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan that through the shed blood of Jesus, he had been purchased, and Jesus was his Lord, and he understood through that purchase, that made him a servant of the Lord. I mean, think about it. When you ask Jesus to be your Lord, that means something, and the Lord, you know what, Lord-servant relationship, if he's your Lord, then you are his servant. It's not like he's my Lord, but we're equals, and I actually kind of tell him what to do. That's a lot of people's versions of Christianity today. Uh, it's like I say, it's not Jesus Christ, it's genie Christ. I rub his belly and command him around. No, he is Lord, and we're his servant. And that's the relationship of the Lord and servant relationship. Now, listen, we're adopted sons and daughters, and, and it's, it's far beyond that. But part of it is, again, he's Lord, and we are servant. And, and, and James understood that. That's what he was because he had been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And it's the same, the same is true for all of us. Listen, if Jesus is your Lord, then that means you're his servant. And again, we're not saved through what we do. We're saved through what he has done for us because he purchased us with his shed blood and our sins forgiven through his life. But he is our Lord and we are his servant. Now, again, there's a lot of people that say, well, I want him to save me, but I don't want him to be my Lord. That's problematic. And this is where you need to, again, check yourself before you eternally wreck yourself because a lot of people like the idea, he's my savior, but he is not my Lord. 
And this is where you need to examine your own life. Is he really the Lord of my life? Have I put my faith in him to be my Lord? I, I want to walk with him. I want to serve him. I put my anchored, my hope in him. Or is it, you know what, save me, Jesus. I'm going to be over here doing my own thing. And much of the book of James is about this. The faith without works is dead. If, if there's not evidence of your faith that he's your Lord, which that evidence actually comes from him being the Lord and him working in your life, it may be that you have a dead faith and a dead faith cannot save your soul. And this is why one of the main reasons why James penned this epistle. And again, there's a lot of people that want to resist this though. They like the idea of saving, being saved. They don't like the idea of him being Lord, a call to holiness, a call to honor his word, a call to test everything by his word because listen, it's the word of God, the word of the Lord, and that is greater than anything else. You start talking about this and some people say, well, this is rigid, this is legalistic. And you know what the Bible calls this? Reasonable service. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Listen, he laid down his life for us. We're going to see in a minute, he became a bondservant to save us. So isn't it not reasonable if he's my Lord that now I am his bondservant? What's unreasonable about that? There's nothing unreasonable about that. And the beautiful thing is that when we lay our, down life, our lives down before him to say, be my Lord... We gain life. Amen. We gain abundant life. We gain eternal life. Nothing's lost when we do that. Maybe some temporary pleasures of sin that equates in death in the long run. But again, it is a Lord-servant relationship. We'll talk more about that here in a second. Again, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he called himself that because servants follow their Lord and Jesus set the example of a bondservant serving the Father and in a way even serving us. Philippians 2.5, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, notice here, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of, a, are you ready for it? Bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Jesus, in being a bondservant, didn't just come to wash our feet and feed the hungry. Jesus came to wash us of our sin, to go to the cross of Calvary, to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father was to make a way for us sinners to be saved. What an awesome God that we have. Why we were still sinners... The Father demonstrated his love for us and that he sent his son to die for us. And he made himself a bondservant to the Father. And he really made a, himself a bondservant to us. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And he laid down his life to save us. Let's remember that when we find ourselves perhaps striving for popularity and recognition. Uh, we haven't been called to self-serve but to promote Christ. That doesn't mean if there's popularity or recognition along the way that that's bad. If you get that, use it for the glory of God. But let's make sure we have the heart of a bondservant. And the heart of a bondservant is let my master be glorified. And if it means me drifting into obscurity, so be it. Jesus laid down his reputation. Jesus really taught his disciples about this. In Matthew 20, verses 24, James and John, the sons of thunder, were arguing about you know what, who was the greatest, and they wanted to sit on the right hand and left hand of the Father, and they, the other disciples heard about it, and they were upset. 
It says in Matthew 20, 24, when the ten heard of it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Notice 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him become your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him become your slave. And notice verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. And as followers of Christ, we are called to give our life to the glory of God and to, again, minister to others by getting our eyes upon Christ and saying, it's time to lay down my agenda. I need to be about the business of the Lord and the calling that he has for me and the place he's put me here in Atascadero, Paso Robles, wherever else you reside and the calling on your life and so forth to say, first and foremost, I'm here to serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. He also called himself a bondservant because bottom line, that's what he was. No matter what his title was, it was umbrellaed under bond servant and think about this is there any greater title than i serve the living god is there any greater cause than the kingdom of god everything else is temporary it comes and goes it will burn but he and his kingdom are eternal there's no greater call than being a servant of the most high god and we all serve something most people serve their own belly, idols, vain pursuits. And they're all false masters that, as a believer, they'll steal your reward, your eternal reward. And as a non-believer, they'll steal your soul. Because those things can't save you. But again, I hear a lot of believers saying, well, I don't have religion, I have a relationship. And yes, we have a relationship with the Lord. He's our Father. We're His sons and daughters. It's glorious. But that doesn't negate He is Lord and I am servant. And so, again, a lot of people use that to try to attack a call to serve God in holiness and to honor His word and to hold His word above our opinion. Well, that's just religion. I got a relationship. Well, if that relationship doesn't include the master-servant relationship... You may not have a relationship with him or some, you might have a relationship with some other false Jesus. Because part of that relationship is he is Lord and we are his servants. So again, where are you with these things? One last note on this. Listen, James served the Lord until the end of his life. We know historically he was martyred between 62 and 66 AD. Again, this is just a historical record. So it's not scripture, but it's pretty powerful what's recorded in the history. Basically, his death is recorded like this. A Jewish leader commanded James to deny the Lord. Instead, James cried out that Jesus was the son of God and judge of the world. As a result, he was hurled to the ground and stoned to death. During the stoning, James praying on, James praying on his knees prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. James historically also has the nickname Camel Knees. And he has that because his knees... They say we're so callous from praying. He was a man of prayer. And listen, I just throw this out there because I think about Paul fighting the good fight, finishing the race, and the fact that we have been called not just to serve for the se a season, but to make it our aim to serve till the end, not to grow weary in doing good. And if you need encouragement in that, you say, man, I, I need encouragement being a bondservant because it can get tiring, right? Jesus knows what it is to be a bondservant. 
Listen, draw near to him. He will comfort you. He will minister to you. He will encourage you with his word. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit of God because it's his will that we are people that serve him. Now, a couple other things here. Notice, James says, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something you can just take a little nugget for you to put in the back pocket. Be led by the Lord, but have you ever had someone knock on your door and they start to try to convince you that Jesus isn't God, he's just some creation? We talked a little bit about those folks er earlier. Well, it's interesting, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus Christ said, no one can serve two masters, he'll hate one and love the other. And now we see Jesus' brother James saying, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, come on, James, which one do you serve? Jesus Christ said, you can't serve both, you'll love one and hate the other. So do you hate God the Father or do you hate the Lord Jesus Christ? How can he say I serve both if Jesus said you can only serve one master? Well, listen, we see in the word of God, God the Father, God, Son, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they are singular, and yet they are one, and they are one with, their, with purpose, with their mind, and so forth. And as he's saying I serve God, he's saying God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying I serve God Jesus Christ. Lord in most applications in the scripture means God. Now, Sarah called Abraham Lord, but it was a title of respect. It's a little L. Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord, he is God. And Romans 10, 9, if you confess Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Lord Jesus, he's God. And so that's how we can serve God the Father and God the Son, because there was not a contradiction between God the Father and and God the Son, and though they're singular, they are one. Now, James was not always a bondservant or a believer. In fact, the scripture makes it very clear that he was a skeptic. He considered his brother an embarrassment. He thought his brother was crazy. I mean, think about it. My big brother thinks he's the Messiah. And yeah, he's got a following, but there's more people that want to kill him, and there's becoming more and more people that want to kill him. As people were resisting that call of salvation by grace through faith, and men in their pride wanted to save themselves. Matthew 12, 47, we read it early. It says that one said to him, or one said to Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. He was on the outside. He didn't want anything to do with what Jesus was saying on the inside. John 7, 1 through 5, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said, depart from here and go to Judea. And your disciples also may see your works and the things you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. They're mocking him. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Notice verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. And that includes James who wrote this epistle. And then in Mark 3.20, and this is where the Lord's ministry in Nazareth were he was raised, and then a multitude came together, so they could not so much as eat bread. But when the people, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. We, we saw him raised here, and now he's saying he's the Messiah. And this is where James was. And Jesus gives explanation of why this was the case. Mark 6, 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives, and in his own house. And profit and popularity rarely go together, especially in your own country, and even more so in your own house. And isn't it true that oftentimes the most difficult people to witness to are people in your own family? Because there's something called pride 
that even more resist that message when it comes to someone who's closer to you, especially when it's your life. So what happened to change this man? What converted him? We'll touch on a few things and wrap this up here shortly. Number one, Jesus throughout his ministry was bold to speak the truth. He did it in love, he did it in compassion, but he never watered it down to appease his mother and brothers. They came knocking and saying, listen, your, your brother, your mom and your brothers, your family's you know, outside looking to seek, talk to you. And what did Jesus say? He said, who's my mother and who's my brothers? He said, it's those that do the kingdom of God. And you're like, dang, Jesus, that's harsh. But that was the truth. He was saying, listen, you don't got an end just because you're my mom or my brothers. You got to have a faith to be part of my family. He never watered down the gospel. He never shrunk back because he said, you're an embarrassment to us. He also always prayed. He prayed at one point, Father, open their eyes. And he prayed for those around him for their salvation. We need to do the same thing. We need to be bold, be compassionate. We need to pray for those around us. Jesus let his light shine before men. His works were seen. He didn't do it to boast. But he wasn't shy in serving the Father. But even with all that, James still didn't believe. So what happened that opened his eyes? Well, his brother was crucified and was raised from the dead. All said in Acts 114, the 120 are in the upper room, and it says they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Praise God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we see that Jesus appeared to his brother James. It was seeing his brother crucified and raised from the dead that impacted James, and no doubt Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. And after the fact, James realizing that, again, Jesus was God, what an impact, knowing at that point he could have wiped this all out, but he said, Father, forgive them. He lived up to his testimony. No greater love than this is there than this, that one will lay down his life for his friends. We need to share the faith, the, the, the gospel and the word of God boldly, in love and compassion, but not apologize for it. We need to pray for those around us. Listen, we, need, we don't need to shrink back of doing good works, let it be seen, but don't do it to get a data boy or boast. But I'll tell you, especially with those around us, what's really impacting, because a lot of times this type of ministry is long-term. They need to see a crucified life. Not, I just did something good, so check me out. Do-goodism is on a, on, a, on a high so people get brownie points. This is, talks about just... The supernatural flow of God working in your life because Jesus is your Savior and daily you say, I want to take up my cross and follow you. That, the fruit of the Spirit that we can't manufacture comes from abiding in Jesus Christ. And it's all the more why it's so important that you abide in Christ, not just for your walk and your worship of God, but for those around you. They need to see the genuine thing. Because let's face it, there's a lot of people that say, listen, I would never become a Christian because of Christians. There's a lot of truth in that. But if that's what you're standing on to save you, that's a false gospel. I'll warn you with that. Because Jesus talks about a lot of false conversions. People say, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. But I, I run into a lot of people, these hypocrites. So surely I'm on the righteous side. You better recover by the blood of Jesus Christ. And put your faith in him today to save you. Because that's not an excuse that will save you. 
But listen, we do have a responsibility to be a bondservant of God and show people a crucified life in Christ that they see the work of Jesus in our life. Because Christ was crucified, but he resurrected. And we're a new creation in Christ. When we come to put our faith in him, listen, our sins nailed, that, nailed to the cross, but, but now we arise and we follow him. Paul put it like this in Galatians 2.19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, translation, I'm a bondservant of Christ. Daily I seek him, I want to live for him. And when we do that, listen, God does the work in us. And again, we touched on it already, but this is in a way kind of the main message of James's epistle. That, that, listen, if you want to have a profitable witness, a profitable ministry, there needs to be some evidences of God working in your life. Otherwise, it's just a dead faith that it's not profitable to save you and it's not profitable to the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. James 2.14, what does a prophet, my brother, if someone says he has faith and does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And this is not saying that faith plus works save you. What it's saying, listen, if Jesus is your Lord and you believe that, that's going to be evidence in your life somewhere. I mean, isn't that a huge thing? Jesus, be my Lord. That's a pretty huge decision, right? There's going to be some evidences. Listen, there's evidences that my kids are my kids and that I believe they're my kids. Feeding them and clothing them and putting a roof over their head and all this. There's evidences of that, that I believe that because it's seen in our relationship. And again, listen, a lot of people like the idea of Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. And if your heart is saving me, but I'm my own Lord, again, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And the Bible throws that out there because Jesus wants to be your Lord. And you're only going to be saved if he truly is your Lord. And you have put your faith in him to be the Lord of your life. Quickly here, next week we're going to get more into this. This springboards into the next three verses. Who does he write this to? To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Listen, the early church was predominantly made up of Jews. That remnant who believed. Many believe that James is the oldest book of the New Testament. So this was the early going on before many, the, the gospel exploded amongst the Gentiles. He says to the 12 tribes, not that we're lost, but we're scattered. Listen, there had been two dispersions of the Israelites hundreds of years before by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they were scattered out. Many of them came back to Israel. Others like Esther and Mordecai stayed where they were, and they served the Lord. On the day of Pentecost... There was a bunch of Israelites there who didn't even speak Hebrew. That's when the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120. They began to proclaim the things of God in other languages so that those Jews could understand, and 3,000 got saved in that day. And then in Acts 8.1, Paul went out, and he began to persecute the, the, the church, the early church predominantly made of Jews, and they were scattered. And God used that for good. Again, we'll get into that next week. So that's who James is writing to. Does that mean, okay, this isn't for me? No, 
Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Knowing who it was written to and by helps us to get the full meaning of what's being said. But this is for us. And then lastly, how does he start his letter after his introduction of who he was and who he was writing to? Greetings. And this is a term of hospitality. This was a term of joy. And it's interesting because he starts by talking about them being scattered. And next, he goes right into tribulations and trials. And we're going to have a wonderful study, Lord willing, in that next week talking about that. But in the midst of it, he has a term of joy. Because no matter what we're going through, no matter how much our life seems scattered in Jesus Christ, anyone feel like your life's scattered a bit today? Trials and tribulations, listen, we have all the reason to have joy in our heart because our God died on the cross for our sins. He resurrected. We know who we are in Jesus. We got a future and a hope. God's working it all for good, and our Lord's on the throne. That's reason to rejoice. Amen. Let's stand up and close in prayer. Um, listen. This morning, if you don't know Christ, I encourage you to call on him. Ask him to be your Lord this morning. I think we got a pretty good picture of what that is. It's coming before him and asking him to save you. It's turning from whatever your Lord is. That's what repentance is, to put your faith in Jesus. And we're saved by grace through faith in him. Put your faith in him today. And this morning, if you're here as we close in prayer, maybe you've already called out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Listen, when we close here... Some prayer counselors are going to come up. Pastor Dwight's going to be up here. Um, there's people up here that will love to pray with you. And we love to pray for you in your new relationship with Jesus Christ. We would love to put a Bible in your hands and encourage you. And I encourage you to come up if you need prayer for something else or, or pray with someone uh, this morning uh, before you leave. Encourage someone this morning before you leave. And so, Heavenly Father, we do bless you. We honor you. We praise you. Lord, Lord, I'm excited, Lord, about this epistle, and Lord, I pray that you would just shape our hearts that, Lord willing, we can glean much from it in our studies to come. Just bless everyone here this morning, God, shine your face upon your, your servants, and I thank you, Lord, that we're, again, even more than that, we're your children through faith in Christ. That's a glorious thing. Any calling you on this morning, God, calling on you, meet them where they're at. Bless them in their new walk with you. And let us, Lord, let us just glorify you and honor you as we finish this morning. And we just pray and ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Let's, let's worship the Lord.
just the voices. Stay in the Lord.